Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of How We Made It in E-Commerce. I am your host, Jasper Kuria. Our guest today is Matthew Burke, the CEO and founder of Beanbox, a leading coffee bean subscription service. They are an Inc. 5000 company, uh, one of the fastest growing companies in America, and have a, a community that's a couple hundred thousand strong. Welcome, Matthew, and congrats on the Inc. 5000 honor. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on and looking forward to a great chat about e-commerce. Likewise. So look at your background. And before you started Beanbox in 2014, uh, you were a chief technology officer and an engineering leader. You have serious technical chops and even built a search engine. How did you go from that to a coffee subscription business? Great question. I think the way that we see our business, we are a tech company that just happens to sell coffee. And we see our ability to kind of get our hands in the works and define what we sell and how we sell it and what the rules are and define our operations. We see all of that as sort of an advantage. My sense is that a lot of folks who come into the e-commerce and or direct to consumer space, they come at it really not from a technical background, but more of a, a marketing background or a product background. And there are any number of tools that will help you put together the ability to make product, ship product, and sell product. But again, the way that we see it is as we scale, our ability to kind of own our own technology and to use that as an advantage will enable our ability to grow and will enable better experiences for our customers. And so we've always, again, we've thought about it as we're a tech company that happens to sell coffee. And the fact that we're sort of tech first and coffee by association, that really gives us an operating advantage. And so far, that's proven out really well. We've been doing this for six years. And I know that had we not been able to get our hands on the works and really own our technology, I don't think we would have come this far. Interesting you mentioned that you're a technology company first that just happens to sell coffee. Is this idea attributed to Mark Andreessen that software is eating the world uh, and every company is essentially a software company, as you espouse, uh, where success depends on technical execution excellence? But there's also an older idea, opposite idea by the thinker Nicholas Carr. The technology is becoming a commodity, much like electricity, and it no longer matters as much as a competitive advantage. What do you think about that line of thinking? I think for software-enabled and internet-oriented businesses, if you page back, let's call it 15 years ago, and you were talking to an investor, there would always be the question like, hmm, is that really technically possible? And today it's simply assumed, and this has been true for a while, that really almost anything is technically possible. And the idea that technology has become a commodity is really, it's everywhere. So there are any number of companies that are incredibly well-funded. They have great products and infrastructures. They offer SaaS versions of anything you could possibly need to start, run, and build a business. But at the same time, again, we see this as an advantage. And so technical execution, you can probably pull off the shelf or out of the cloud 20 different tools that will help you more or less instantly have what looks like a business. But it's that sort of integration between the multiple tools that is a real challenge. And so on the one hand, we can do anything we want just by paying monthly fees to 20 different SaaS companies or uh, folks who will fulfill your product or even build your, build your product or ship your product. Or, and so that's doable. And as I said, a lot of folks in the 
sort of direct-to-consumer world do pick and choose from tools, and then they simply shuttle data back and forth using spreadsheets. And so that's a world we live in. There are a lot of folks who are tremendously successful, much, much larger than us, that have taken those sort of commodity pieces and bolted them together. But again, our, our position has always been that like by being able to own our own technology, to be fair, we do hand things to third parties. There are only a few. And that's where we say, look, that's not our core competency, or it's not core to the experience or core to the product or core to, to our ability to sell. And those are usually things like infrastructure. But we always look for the advantage and whether or not we should own the tech or not. And so, and this is kind of interesting, the, the areas where we don't really write our own code are things like generating postage and generating shipping labels. We do a ton of that. It's not our core competency. There might be some advantage to doing it. I honestly can't see what it is. Another example, and this is classic among people who are in the consumer space, is email. So when we started, we wrote code to automate the sending of emails and who gets what and when they get it, everything from a receipt to an invitation to purchase to a shipment notification. And in the beginning, we said we need to control all of our own emails, but it also got to a place where the scale was such that we set up. Email is one of those areas where we should be integrating with a third party. There too, our integration is kind of what matters, even for areas where we're relying on a third party for their tech staff, things like generating postage and labels or email as two examples. The integration is really, really important. So to stick with those two, when it comes to generating postage to ship our coffee, what we want to own is thinking about who's getting it, when do they order, what's the priority, where are they located, what's the transit time, how many different carriers can we hit, all of that. And so we want to control that logic, even if we then go to a third party and say, you know what, use FedEx, generate this label, and pick it up tomorrow. And same thing with email, where Klaviyo is a great example. We use Klaviyo for email, and we use them because it's their core business, but we still control the logic of who gets what and when, and how those are integrated into sort of the customer lifecycle. So it's not just enough to sort of realize when you're going to hand something to a third party, but those integrations really require sort of a technical aptitude. Maybe another example would be we allow people to buy their coffee, whether it's on the website, on the mobile app, they can buy it through a text message. And so for things like text messaging, we're going to use Twilio because it's all they do. It's infrastructure. But Again, our advantage is that we can code up responses to a text message so that you can get a featured coffee and it says, hey, would you like to buy the Ethiopia fill in the blank? It's a great light roast. Uh, press A for one bag, B for two bags, C for three bags. And that in integration we can control. So again, even those points where there is commodity tech that's available, for us, the priority is on using it in a smart way. So it ends up being a bit of both. But again, if we couldn't control our own technology, we would simply be guessing at how to operate those third parties and or shuttling back and forth and trying to point integrate them. And, and that can be really difficult work. You run a subscription business. And like recently, there's been a glut of subscription box businesses. Everywhere you look, there's a subscription for this, that, or the other. And now there are even services, multiple services to help you build a subscription box business. 
it almost feels like the days of the daily deal sites around 2013. And most of these services have very high acquisition costs, very high churn rates, negative reviews with customers complaining that they can't easily cancel, they get products they don't want, and so on and so forth. But you've been unusually successful in this business. What's your secret? So we look at a couple of things. First, we look at the product and the market we're in. And so if you set aside sort of the history of what happened with folks like Harry's and Dollar Shave Club, and you look at their market and the product space, you have to ask the question, okay, well, what worked to allow them to scale? And there are a lot of answers to that, right? There are a lot of aspects to, is everything from being well-funded to being in the right place at the right time. But fundamentally, from a consumer standpoint, things like razor blades are things we use all the time. Similarly, so when we thought about getting into this, coffee is something that we drink all the time. And so there's kind of a chronic need for it. Whereas other folks who are kind of selling to consumers this model of a box, or it's a recurring box or a subscription box, or I find very, very often that they're not necessarily the right market slash use case. So a great example would be socks. And there may be some terrific sock subscription box companies out there. I, I don't know. But there you have a sort of a, a lack of a consumer problem or a different sort of consumer problem, which is I may need to buy socks. I probably don't need to buy socks every month. It would be nice to get socks every month, but it's not something that I'm doing chronically. So the first part of our response to this sort of question is that if you're going to do it and you're going to have that option, then don't do it because you like the business model of subscription or because you like the idea that customers are going to get your stuff periodically. Maybe they pay for it up front or recurring revenue is nice and predictable. The reason to do it is that it has to fit the use case. For a while, there was a company that was doing, and I'm sure there's a new version of this company. It was decorative items for your home. And every month you got a different box and you have to ask, there's like a fundamental use case question there, which is how often do you need to bring in decorative items for your home? And I think that leads to a lot of what you're talking about in the reviews where, you know, I got this, but I didn't like two of the three items, or it's just a mismatch of use case. There's a, another great sort of market is makeup where, you know, you'll get all these samples and my wife talks about this all the time. It's great to get some samples for a while, but in terms of whether or not you want to do that again and again and again and again, it's kind of a, it's an open question for the use case. The other thing, so just to put a pin in that, um, we looked at coffee and we said like coffee is something that if you're a coffee drinker, you're going to want it. You're going to want it every week. You're going to want it every month. You're going to want it dot, dot, dot. And where we sort of specialize is giving people an experience that for the most part is monthly, but it can be every two weeks or every week where we're exposing them to different types of coffee from different origins all over the world. And so part of what we're doing is that we're exposing people to a different experience every time. As part of that, the other thing that we've done from day one is, and I, and I always love to talk about this, if we had built our business as a quote unquote subscription business, we would not be around Today. And the reason for that, again, is like it all comes down to the consumer use case. But fundamentally, I, I look at some of the subscription businesses that are out there. And really, those are about solving a, an economic use case and a product use case and not a consumer use case. And so we've found like one of the traditional things you'll be asked if you do anything at all related to subscription is like, well, what's your churn rate? And so we struggled with this for a really long time. And we discovered that we would see customers who churned out of a monthly 
sampler subscription who became better customers. And they became better customers spending more money more frequently because they learned enough about what they liked to come back and buy bags of coffee all the time, whether we featured them, they were in their box originally, or they just liked a certain either origin or style of coffee. And so we've always built this business around having subscription as one part of the equation. So if it's right for the customer to get something every month, every week, every two weeks, awesome. We have a product for that. But if it's not, if they want to come in and buy just a bag of coffee or they want to buy 10 bags of coffee or they want to send a gift and we do a huge business around coffee gifting, then we have these other economic models. So what I would say is unless you have like, and razors again is a really good example of this, unless you have a consumer use case that is absolutely 100% bound to the idea that you need to get it again and again, 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 you need to have a business that has multiple economic models that fit multiple types of customer needs. And again, in, in our case, it's you might buy one or 10 or 100 bags of coffee. You might get a monthly sampler or a biweekly sampler. You might come in and buy gifts for your family and friends in the fourth quarter. Those are different ways to buy coffee. And so we say as a business, our fundamental use case is help people get great coffee and experience it, whether it's for themselves or as a gift. And one of the ways that we happen to do that is through a recurring subscription box type model. But there are other ways that we do it again. So for us, we just see it as like one aspect of a broader set of customer needs around coffee experience. That is super interesting. And by the way, the Socks Vast subscription, I never really understood that business. There's also one called Panty Drop that ships panties every so often. That's raised a couple million dollars. So, so I'm with you on that. And what you describe is interesting and new to me, where people will sample for a while enough to know what they like, and then they'll become better customers buying a lot more once they, they know what they like. And so what percentage of your customers would you say are regular subscription versus the latter that you just described? Well, it varies by season. So okay. our business fluctuates. In the fourth quarter, the bulk of, of our sort of revenue and volume really comes from people who are buying coffee gifts. Okay. And so it kind of shifts by the season. The way we see our business seasonally is that we have... Uh, Q2 and Q4 are very large gifting seasons where the purchases are individual and shipped out to other people. You know, really uh, Q1, Q3 are more for personal consumption. And those are heavier times when we acquire and bring in a lot of new customers. The other way that we like to think about our business is what's the progression? And so we have a couple of different like customer life cycles. So one progression is you come in, you're interested in coffee, you get a starter kit. A starter kit is two little bags of coffee. And then you say, hmm, I kind of like this coffee. It's different than what I'm used to. And then you come in and you might buy one bag of coffee. And then you like that and you decide that, you know what, you want to taste coffees every month. And then you come in and you're on your subscription sampler. And then on top of that, as you, your palate sort of evolves, you might then buy coffees that we feature every week. And so there's sort of a a phase of personal consumption. And maybe that ends in buying coffee all the time from us, plus in Q2 or Q4, sending out a gift. And then there's another customer journey where, for example, I might send you a gift. Let's say it's, I don't know, let's say it's the end of the year. I decide you're a great guy. I want to send you some coffee. And so maybe it's just ad hoc. I decide to send you a world coffee tour. So you get that tour and you say, oh my gosh, this is different than what I'm used to. And then you will come back to And so there's something like 
10 to 15% of every gift recipient that we send to in the fourth quarter will show up and become either a purchaser or a subscriber. And so we have these different sort of customer journeys. And, and to go back to your last question, if we only did subscriptions, then it wouldn't make sense. We wouldn't have that journey. You're either on a subscription or not. Whereas for us, you might start your journey with a taste, with a bag, with a subscription, receiving a gift, giving a gift. And there are a lot of people who will also come to us. They'll give a gift. They'll hear that the recipient liked it. And then the giver will come back to us and become a subscriber and a purchaser. And so you, you need those sort of life cycles to generate customer interest over time. And we've tried really hard as a business to give people multiple ways into what we do. And we hope that those different ways fit either where they are in their sort of coffee life cycle or where they are as a, a person or whether or not they're working from home versus going into an office. And so we try and give people a lot of reasons to come in and become customers and then to become larger customers. I noticed on your website that you source from lots of different artisanal roasters all over. Would you say that's a key differentiator that would prevent, say, a Starbucks or, God forbid, Amazon uh, realizing that your business is attractive and muscling in and outcompeting you? That's a good question. There are really three sort of players doing similar things to what we're doing. The first are individual coffee companies or roasters. And so they are just starting to sell online. Primarily, their businesses are roasting coffee for cafes and operating cafes. And selling coffee online is very, very new to them. When they do do that, they may offer a subscription. Um, generally, it's the very last thing that they think about. And so there are a lot of people who are just waking up to the idea that People are going to buy a lot of coffee online. It's one of the fastest growing segments, uh, not just of the coffee industry, but if you look at Amazon Gourmet, coffee is almost doubling year over year. It's, it's tremendous. That's sort of player number one, the coffee sort of roaster. Player number two, there are a couple of folks out there who they will bring together a bunch of roasters. They will say, hey, roasters, tell us what coffees you're selling. They will take an order for that roaster's coffee. And then they will send the order over to the roaster. The roaster will then ship a bag. And so there, what they're doing is they're kind of replicating what's in the supermarket, but with a network of suppliers. And their model is we're going to sell large bags of coffees. And if you want two bags from two different coffee roasters, they're going to come from two different places in the country. And it's hard to get operational advantage there. And then the third type of player is kind of what we do. We create products that are built out of the coffees that we curate. We curate those coffee from almost 40 different coffee roasters, most of whom are regional. And then we sell those to a national audience. So the way that we think about it, and I think we're pretty much the only ones doing this at scale, we take a highly local and highly fragmented supply chain for a product that people are just beginning to know that they love. We take that local fragmented supply chain of coffee roasters, we curate their coffees in and create new products. And then we push that out to a national audience. So think highly local, highly fragmented supply chain, highly national set of customers who are increasingly demanding this level of coffee. And that model is different than everyone else. Obviously, we're not a coffee roaster, but we're the only one selling coffee online where we literally handle all the beans. The beans come to us and there's a big sort of physical operational aspect of what we do that if you are just taking orders for bags of coffee and routing them to roasters around the country, you don't really need to worry about the physicality of packaging, of managing 
you know, and during some weeks, it's tons and tons of fresh coffee beans. Um, and so that's an added obligation for our business, but it also allows us to create new products that have like our world tour as 16 different coffees from 16 different coffee origins roasted by 16 different lo local coffee roasters. And the other part that sort of is an operational advantage to us by operating this way, there's an overhead to actually handling all the beans that come to us. But at the same time, that gives us the ability where if one roaster runs out of a coffee that we want, we can go to another roaster. If one set of beans doesn't arrive on time, we can pull it from another. In any given week, we have upwards of 100 different coffees from almost 40 different roasters. And it allows us to pick and choose and curate and kind of combine those into new products. And for us, all of that is sort of operational advantage, which comes back to your first question. If we weren't software folks, we wouldn't be able to take advantage of all that stuff on the operations side because bringing in that variety and that volume of coffee really means you have to stay on top of what your system knows about who's ordering what, who's received what, how it's combined together, how it needs to be packaged and labeled and routed. All of that work requires ownership of your technology. And so we take this as sort of an additional burden to what we do. It's not just selling bags online. There's a real manufacturing and operational aspect of what we do. But again, all of that is to our advantage because we're, we're really the only ones doing that model today. Wow. Coffee can be so, so complex. Sounds like you have some very serious like logistics and software to manage all that. So something you mentioned about if one particular flavor of coffee from a local artisanal roaster isn't available, you can get it from another. And so I'm not a big coffee aficionado. If say there's like Ethiopian uh, injera coffee from Victrola Coffee Roasters in Seattle, if for some reason they're out of that, someone else can provide that very flavor. Yes and no. I think what's hard to understand, I mean, the way most people think about coffee mm -hmm. is that coffee is a commodity. And by and large, the bulk of the coffee market across the world is commodity coffee. And some people love commodity coffee, and that's great. And they can go into a supermarket and get what they need. What we feature is called specialty coffee. And specialty coffee, often um, roasters will have direct relationships with farmers in countries all over the world. They'll negotiate directly with those farmers. And the lots can be as small as 500 pounds of coffee. And that's all there is for that year in the entire world. And so we deal in micro lot coffees. And what that means is that the complexity, one of the bits of complexity we manage is those micro lots turn over and over and over and over. And keeping track of that is really difficult. The benefit to the consumer, I mean, the risk is that you love a coffee and now it's not here until next year. But the benefit is that you get access to a level of quality that's really quite hard to find because these micro lots disappear. So as an example, the person who does our coffee curation is a juror for something called the Cup of Excellence. And they travel to almost all the coffee producing countries and regions in the world, and they run a competition. Every year they run a competition. So there's one in Colombia and in Peru and in Ethiopia and again, all over the world. And these judges go there and farmers will bring out their best tree. And so we have access to that coffee, which by and large, those coffees are generally purchased and shipped out to Asia. And some of them can be super unique and some of them can be super expensive. So within a couple of months, we're featuring, it was the number one ranked washed Ethiopian by the Cup of Excellence. And it, it's well, well over $100 a pound. But there's only 
a couple hundred pounds in the entire world. And so we think about it as part of what we do is we allow people to sample. The other part of what we do is by having that robust supply chain and by having access to those coffees, we give people a view onto a part of the coffee industry that in the United States, it's very, very hard to do. And so that's also a part of what makes us special, having access to that supply chain and bringing in coffees where Again, it's only a couple of bags existing in the world at a given time, and that's it for that year. And that's what we like to sort of promote to our customers. And a lot of them have never tried super expensive coffee. And by now, a ton of them have, and they know why it's worth that cost. And they know that the cost is going directly to the farmer. And all of those things that are very sort of rich and interactive and bind us to folks around the world who are literally growing coffee and picking coffee and tasting coffee and shipping it around. All of those things make for a very rich experience end to end, but especially for our customers. Very impressive indeed. So today, how many employees, customers, and revenues do you have? Employees, we're about a dozen. Okay. So we're really, really small. Customers, a couple hundred thousand, and that's over six years. And we have thousands and thousands of people who regularly get our sampler boxes and our bag subscription. So we reach a lot of people. And every year, I think this is important to add that having that business model around gifting, we have a seasonal surge. And so in the fourth quarter, every single year, we see an almost doubling of the volume of new customers and volume of sales that we do. And that makes for a lot of fun. From a revenue standpoint, knock wood. This year, we expect to do pretty close to 8 million. We'll have to see. Very impressive. Let's talk about customer acquisition. What are your main ways for acquiring customers? You mentioned that people who receive gifts uh, either become customers or gift themselves. So obviously you, you have some virality there. What are other ways? The first one is really this virtuous cycle around gift purchase, gift giving, gift receipt, and then those folks becoming customers, but also gift givers becoming customers. From an acquisition standpoint, we've always loved the gifting business. The hard part about gifting is that you do have a seasonal peak and so that is a forcing function around buying equipment and hiring people. And there are a bunch of costs associated with that. So we try and keep the margin super high. You know, the other ways that we think about acquisition, gift is easy. If you need a gift, you need a gift. And so it's relatively easy and inexpensive to acquire. The other things that we do is we uh, use our product footprint. So we have a starter kit. So for $5, you can sample the type of coffee that we feature. And so we have folks who will come in. Many times it's sort of word of mouth. Sometimes they see an email that gets forwarded or what have you. We do occasionally acquire either through Google or Facebook. We have a pretty big following on Instagram. And that's a good source of customers for us. But it's really important and we've learned this. And, and you mentioned this as well from an acquisition standpoint. The cost of acquiring someone into a re recurring subscription, whether it's socks or razor blades or home decorations or coffee or anything, that can be really high. And the reason is that customers aren't necessarily sure. They want to give you their credit card and commit and worry about canceling and all that. So in addition to paying to acquire some of our customers, we try and have a product footprint where if you don't want to commit to a subscription, you can start in on a starter kit. And $5 later, you have fresh coffee at your door that you've never experienced before. And again, that starts them on their journeys. The other big part of what we do for customer acquisition is email. We gather emails on our site. We do things like giveaways. We have a pretty tremendous portion 
of our non-seasonal revenue comes from email. It's almost 40% of all of our revenue comes from email. And that takes two parts. So it's not traditional sort of paid acquisition. There's a cost to doing it. But um, part A are any type of email around the customer lifecycle, whether that's we're featuring a coffee to specific customers because it's in their preference, or it could be that it's their anniversary, or it could be because we have a new coffee that we think they're going to like, or there are all these life cycles around what our customers do. And the second part is really what we feature every week. So every week, our coffee curator goes out and finds really interesting roasts in different roast profiles, light, medium, dark, and we feature those out to customers. And that is constantly bringing people in who are saying, oh my gosh, I, I've never tasted a coffee that conjures up notes of marshmallow. And uh, I'm going to try that one because I love light roasts. And, um, and so we try and feature these coffees and tell a story around them. And again, email as a as sort of a channel is a really tremendous part of our acquisition strategy. What would you say are the main challenges in your business today? I think number one is really the seasonality of our gifting business. When you go from a world where you're doing a manageable volume of manufacturing and fulfillment every week to a world where you're going to need four times the number of employees and you're going to have 10, 10 times the number of orders and fulfillments and that is a forcing function. That means you have to have labor and access to coffee and space in your facility and equipment and process and inventory and things like boxes and labels. And so every year growing at that rate in really a super compressed period. And when I say fourth quarter, it's really the last couple of weeks of the year. And so that as a forcing function has always been great in terms of growing the business on all axes, but it's also a, a tremendous, having that capacity is a tremendous cost. So that's kind of challenge number one. And every year we start planning for the fourth quarter, literally in July, we're well underway planning for our fourth quarter right now. So I think that's number one. I think number two, and every business has this in different ways. Number two is really capitalization. So we have made a very intentional decision to not take in a bunch of investment. And so we operate with a lot of financial constraint. And that's everything from buying inventory to have on hand to who we can hire and when to how much we can spend for a certain coffee. We are super tight financially. And what we've always felt is that set of constraints, while it may lead us to slower growth than if we had a, you know, a boatload of cash, it also breeds a type of creativity in problem solving. And so we have made an explicit decision to uh, have much more organic and from many people's standpoint, slower growth pattern than if we had gone out and raised a bunch of money. But the other type of financial constraint that I've seen is sometimes you have companies where they have a great idea, they raise a ton of money, and now creativity goes out the window. Problem solving may go out the window and you're running for scale. And so we would rather have the sort of slower organic growth and fund our own growth from our own cash flow, um, which we can now do, um, then just all of a sudden there's no more money problems, at least until we run out and we're gonna hire a bunch of people and we're gonna buy a bunch of equipment. And for us, that's not the right path. Our market is big enough and we're gonna grow into it. But capital constraint is a challenge for us and we have lots of creative ways to kind of work with it. So that's number two. 
And I think number three is really complexity. My co-founder and I come from a, the software world, and there's a great advantage to that in our business. But at the same time, we, we have a lot of complexity to manage. And sometimes, because you're used to writing software, you may take a simple problem and make it more complicated. And so managing to complexity as we grow is a real challenge. And I would love to say that coming from software, it allows me to manage to that complexity better. But the truth is, sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. And for any folks who have worked in software, you'll find that like sometimes it really works and you have a super complex problem. You find a simple, elegant solution. Other times you have really what in retrospect is a pretty simple problem and you come up with a really complicated solution. And so managing to that in our business is a daily, daily challenge. So I take it you're not a fan of blitzscaling, blitz <laughs> if you're familiar with that term. I tend to stay away if from anything that has blitz prepended to it, blitzkrieg, blitz scale. We have a blitzkrieg every year and that's the fourth quarter. You know, like we're comfortable with that, but we're very uncomfortable with the idea that we're going to have instant scale. That makes sense. And then for the first problem you mentioned, something like fulfillment by Amazon or Walmart's new equivalent service, is that helpful to you at all? Do you use it to manage the accordion type of demand you see? No, and our pattern is really Amazon. So like Amazon, when they were starting out, they had the same challenge, which is they had this seasonal explosion for which they needed to pre-invest in capacity. And that panned out very, very well for them. But in the early years, it was also a, a very large cost. And it allowed them having excess capacity, which was forced by the seasonality of the business, that excess capacity turned into a tremendous operational advantage for them, making them one of the most valuable companies in the world. So that is sort of our, our pattern for what we're doing. But when we look at using their capacity, that's very difficult. So we do sell on Amazon, but we are a seller fulfilled prime. And the problem we've always run into, whether it's 3PLs or using Amazon for our own fulfillment, is that the perishability of the coffee prevents that. And so for us, we like coffee to come in on Monday and be out by Friday. And we're still able to manage that. In holiday, that gets much more difficult because you have to pre-manufacture, pre-package, and pre-build everything you're going to sell. But we still have these incredibly tight sort of just-in-time manufacturing and fulfillment. And what we've experimented with is sending product out to 3PLs. We've experimented with sending it out to Amazon. And the problem is it doesn't turn fast enough and the coffee experience really suffers. So fresh coffee is built into the sort of complexity that we have to manage. So we have to manage first in, first out inventory. We have to make sure that the coffee we bring in doesn't sit on a shelf. If what we did were shelf stable, then I would be taking advantage of Amazon and others, but it needs to be fresh to be experienced. And so we don't, we don't have that luxury. Who are the two entrepreneurs or CEOs from the e-commerce age that you admire most and why? Well, I'll give you two, but they're not necessarily from the e-commerce age. The first one isn't. There was a fellow named Bernie Goldhirsch. He started the Goldhirsch Group, which became known as Inc. So Inc. is Inc. Magazine, Inc. Technology. They had a consulting group. They had a conference group. And it was where I got my start writing software. And the thing that I admired most about him as a CEO, he was curious about everything. And there wasn't an aspect of all of the different businesses operating under the roof that he didn't want to go and figure out and learn about and understand deeply 
so that he could make better decisions. And he also created a culture that was all about sort of entrepreneurial ownership and drive. And he really rewarded that. So under the umbrella where you would find things that we all know and love, like, again, Inc. Magazine was just one example. He had all of these other businesses that were started by employees who were just enterprising. And they said, look, one example is like, we're going out and we're talking to advertisers about you know, selling ads in the magazine or on the website, but we really should be running events and let them sponsor the events. And they did that. Another example would be like, we're going and talking to all these interesting companies to profile them in the magazine, but they're encountering all these problems scaling. We should have a consulting group. And so he said, that's great. We're going to give you some seed. You're going to go figure it out. And so that sort of entrepreneurial culture is an amazing thing to see in companies. And I think it's very, very rare these days, even in a startup, to see that kind of culture. So that's number one. Number two, more up to date. I really admire Bezos, not necessarily for what I want to admire him for. What I admire is taking the overhead of excess capacity and turning it from a tremendous risk into a tremendous asset. And so I think there was a lot of really strong intentional thinking and management and execution. I'm not looking at Amazon recently. I'm looking at Amazon like from the beginning. And what I admire most there is creating a culture where what could have been disastrous, which is having too much capacity, where there are plenty of companies that raise tons of money. They say, build for scale, build for scale, go and capture your market. They can't capture the market fast enough and they're stuck with all this capacity. It could be employee and resource capacity. It could be machines in space. It could be servers, you name it. But what he did and what I really admire is he found a way to turn the need for excess capacity into one of the strongest business advantages that's ever been seen. It allowed them to go into orthogonal or related spaces it allowed them to productize their own use of everything from you know, servers to space to fulfillments. I really do admire that sort of taking something that otherwise is really a huge risk and turning into a huge, huge opportunity. Indeed, EC2 is their number one profit center. What's the one piece of advice you'd like to share with our audience? Perhaps the thing you wish someone told you before you founded Beanbox. One nugget we can take away and, and be as successful as you. So here, here's what I think. And th this is about e-commerce. And, and I, this is the one thing I wish someone told me up front. E-commerce takes time. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter whether you have a good agency or if you have an agency at all. It doesn't matter if you have 10 marketers or zero marketers. It doesn't matter if building a customer base and getting established online and even just figuring out like what your core product is, that takes time. And you don't always get it right. And it's an iterative process. And when we started this, we're like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, we can make the product. We can write the code. We can do all this stuff. Like, what, how come it's not sticking yet? Do we need to spend more money on acquisition? Do we need to do this or that? And the answer for a lot of these things is like, it has to happen organic. And I'm sure you're aware of this. Like often when you kind of come in and throw resource at a problem, whether it's cash or people or other, you push it along the hill. And then when you withdraw the resource, it falls down the hill again to get over that hump and really build a sustainable e-commerce business, there are some things that you cannot, you just cannot buy the equivalent of time. It just requires time. And I didn't know that. And I thought it would be easier if you did all the right things 
and you got your product market fit just right, and you spent on the right type of acquisition, you, you figured that out, it still takes time. And part of that could just be that, like on the consumer side, no matter what you do, you don't become a brand that someone trusts enough to spend money with until there's time. And I had no idea going in. It was simply like, oh, if I execute, we'll figure it out. We just execute. Um, but really on the customer side, like they need time to learn about you, to trust you. And I'm happy that six years in, we've earned at least some of that. But I really wish on day one, someone said, it doesn't matter how well you execute. You're going to need time. I loved how you enunciated that. It takes time. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you. you. All the best. Hope you make the $8 million target this year. Give us your address. We'll send you some coffee and hopefully you enjoy it. We'll do. We'll do. Thank you so much.